Please turn in your Bibles today to two passages of Scripture. I'm going to first refer to Isaiah chapter 45, and then we're going to probably look at a few things around 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1, you can turn there, and also Isaiah 45. Today I want to begin by reading in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 15 to 17. But let me explain to you why I'm starting here. In last week's sermon, I made an application, one application that I thought about, and I want to expand upon it today in this sermon. And then maybe next week we'll get back to my series on King Solomon. Well, last week in that one application, I said this. I said that God often hides Himself, or to put it another way, He will often hide His truth under some kind of surface material. We're going to look at that. But in that application from last week, I alluded to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. So let me begin by reading these three verses. Verses 15 to 17, and then I'll pray. Isaiah says this in verse 15, Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll illumine this passage and even this theme that this passage talks about to our hearts today and give us your insight and wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage I just read to you here in the book of Isaiah, it's very clear what's happening, what's wrong in the context here. Israel has fallen into idolatry. So they want to make a God that they can see with their eyes, they can feel with their hands, And what they do is they carve out all these images out of wood and stone and all that. And they start worshiping the works of their own hands. Now notice this, Isaiah says this. By contrast, the images that they're carving with their own hands are completely different from the God of Israel. Because what does God do? He says that God hides Himself so that you cannot see Him, basically. He's contrasting the true and living God to the God of the idols. But notice this in this passage in Isaiah chapter 45. It's not that something is so big or something else is hiding God or overshadowing God. What's happening is God is actively doing it. God is the one hiding himself in this verse. He is actively doing it. Well, this is the theme I want to expand upon today. And there's countless ways that God actually hides himself. And today, I want to point out just a few scenes in the Bible where we see God hiding Himself, or you can say this, God will hide a truth about Himself or a reality about Himself that He actually just wants us to get and understand, even though He's hiding it. Let me start off with this first point, and this this. So in the Bible, we see this, that God will sometimes hide righteousness under Sin. Let me put it this way. In other words, on the surface of some biblical passages, 
there's an appearance of sin, or there may actually be sin itself on the surface of the passage when you're reading it. But God's saying this, look deeper, look deeper, keep looking at it, and you'll see my righteousness. You'll see what I'm up to. Or God may be saying this, you'll see their righteousness, and you'll see what they are doing to honor me. Let me give an example, and I'm going to rely upon this example from what I preached on last week about Abishag and David and the context there in 1 Kings. Some of you weren't here, so I'm going to rehearse the story a little bit and remind you what happened. Well, in that episode, the first few verses in 1 Kings chapter 1, there's a contrast between what David and Abishag were doing on the surface of the passage versus what God is doing on the symbolic depths of the passage and around. Listen to this. Abishag was this beautiful, the most beautiful young virgin from all of Israel that day. And David's servants brought her in to lie down with David on his deathbed when he was 70 years old. David, at that time, could not get warm. So they brought her in to warm him up under the covers. Now all this language you read about is a euphemism. Because it's just a nice way of reminding you of David's sin with Bathsheba. However, when Abishag laid down with David, the Bible says that David did not know her. And again, this is just a nice way of saying that Abishag kept her purity and there was no physical relationship between David and Abishag. But the reason why David did not know her in this way is because David was dying. So, the book of 1 Kings starts off with this old king dying and lying on his deathbed. And at least you can say this, that there's an appearance of an inappropriate, (laughs) sinful situation with David trying to get warm with this beautiful young virgin under his covers. On the surface, it looks sinful. On the surface, it looks inappropriate and looks pretty bad. In fact, you can go on the internet And you'll find scores and scores and multitudes of commentators who will say how horrible this was in this sense because it's so abusive for Abishag, it's a maltreatment against her, and it's a perversion. Look how horrible this is. Well, when you look deeper and you look at the surrounding context of that passage, God wants you to see something very different. Because Abishag was symbolizing the nation of Israel at that time. Let me explain to you how that's, how that's the case. Earlier that year, the nation of Israel had just been raped by Absalom. And Absalom illustrated this publicly when he took all of David's women on the top of the roof, on the rooftop, in front of Israel and slept with them all. Those women on the roof were corresponding with the nation on the ground. Well, after God judged Absalom of death, According to the, the way 2 Samuel is structured, the nation of Israel was purified. The nation of Israel was made a virgin again. And this is symbolized in the way that 2 Samuel ends. When you look at 2 Samuel, the ending of 2 Samuel, David makes a sacrifice to the Lord. He accepts the sacrifice and peace is given to the nation 
And notice the very last word at the end of 2 Samuel. The last word is Israel. The plague was withdrawn from Israel, period. That last word picks up on the very first picture of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 1, which is a picture of the beautiful young virgin Abishag. Now in 1 Kings chapter 1, what was the problem? The problem was David was not able to know her, and neither did David was he able to know what was threatening Israel at the time in 1 Kings chapter 1. What was threatening Israel at the time in 1 Kings chapter 1? There was a serpent, a serpent named Adonijah. A serpent named Adonijah tried to take the woman for himself. Who's the woman? The nation of Israel. Adonijah tried to seize that woman for himself. Well, as the, un- events, as the events unfolded, King Solomon is the true son of David of that generation. He ascends to the throne and he crushes the head of the serpent, Adonijah. So you see, where Adam failed to protect his bride and failed to kill the serpent in the garden, King Solomon actually rose to the occasion, protected the bride, Israel, and even killed the serpent, Adonijah. So in summary, you can see this, that the whole narrative that God is hiding underneath this passage about David and Abishag, this whole narrative is is exposing the fact that God is bringing His girl, His nation of Israel, to the true king. There's a dead king, a dying king earlier in 1 Kings 1. And so you see that God's righteousness is actually under the text symbolically. And He's giving His nation to a true son of David for that generation who would know her and also know Abishag as well. Well, we see the same principle of God hiding righteousness under sin because think of this application as well throughout the Bible. How many times do you have righteous deceptions in the Bible? Where on the surface, when you read the passage of Scripture, it looks like the person is sinning, disobeying the moral law of God. But when you look at the subsurface and the under, under that, they're actually lying to, an, to the devil. And they're lying to a tyrant to save lies or to honor God. You think about Rebekah. Whenever she deceived her husband Isaac, he didn't want to bless Jacob whom God wanted him to bless. So what did Rebekah do? Rebekah deceived Isaac, and in doing that, she was honoring God and also righteous. You can't just read that text upon the surface. You have to see what's going on on the subsurface. There's a list of at least 20 different, that I have in my office, there's at least 20 different occasions where there's a righteous deception in the Scripture. There's another way in which God hides things under a text. Let me tell you this story, and that's Rachel. Rachel's righteousness is hiding right there in front of you when you read about her death. Rachel is dying in Genesis chapter 35 and she's giving birth to Benjamin and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. And she names him after her sorrow. Says this is the son of my sorrow and she dies. Well, you stay on the surface of that text and you read it, you think, well, she had a weak faith at the end. 
Did she die with saving faith? She's just so sorrowful. Of course she died with saving faith because you haven't looked deeper into the text. What, what she meant by that was that she had lost Joseph long, long before. She thought Joseph was dead. She was sorrowful for all those years. Finally, she has joy. Her sorrow has given birth to Benjamin. And now she can die with joy. She goes to her, her death right there after giving birth to Benjamin with the joy of the Holy Spirit because God has blessed her with her son that God has promised. And so death means nothing to her. She goes to her death in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see why commentators can have a field day in the Bible because some commentators will stay on the surface and they don't want you to get to the depths. And they, that's why there's so much disagreement sometimes between what's right, what's wrong, what's going on in the text, because some stay on the surface, some don't see what God's doing on a typological, symbolic level underneath. Or even hiding the faith of someone like Rachel underneath her sorrow. So God often hides His righteousness, or He may hide the righteousness of others, under the text, and it may be under sin or even under the appearance of sin. And this leads me to talk about another way in which God likes to hide. God likes to hide an obvious reality under silence. So I'm going to be silent for the rest of the sermon. I'm joking. For the sample, let me give an example of how God hides an obvious reality under silence. And that is as I mentioned last week, that I'm fully persuaded that Solomon later married Abishag, who's mentioned in here in 1 Kings chapter 1. And then also Solomon later would use Abishag as a backdrop for writing the Song of Solomon. So when you look at Song of Solomon that we're studying on Wednesday night, you can see that Abishag is not only about, or the Song of Solomon is not only about Abishag, but also about Israel and the church and God's loving desire through Jesus Christ for us, His church. But here's the question I'm posing to you and I want to answer for you as well. Why, Eric? Why am I so confident that Solomon married Abishag when the Bible does not explicitly say that they got married? Well, the answer is this. When the reality is so obvious, God expects you to just get it without Him saying a word. So, for example, let me... Do the math for you and show you the math and see if you can add it up. Abishag was the most beautiful virgin of all Israel in her day. Number two, add this up with it. She functioned symbolically for the nation of Israel. And this is why later in the narrative, Adonijah tries to, tries to marry Abishag because he wants to become the king over Israel. Solomon sniffed that out and said that's why he deserves a death penalty. He's going for the throne when he grabs, tries to grab Abishag. So you add that up with her being so beautiful. And of course, who is the rightful king? Solomon is the rightful king of his generation. And Abishag is the symbol of the nation. So if you cannot add that up and just get it, then God is disappointed in your math skills. Okay? That's an example of how I'm using the obvious where God says, look, this is so obvious, I just don't need to say it. You need to just get it. Here's another, let me give you two examples too in the Bible where God is silent and expects His people to get it. 
That is in Leviticus chapter 11. It's interesting. There's kind of a boring passage, but God gives all these laws of what they're not supposed to eat in the Old Testament. These, these foods are unclean. These foods are unclean. And he gives a list of these, these animals. Listen to this. The, the mole, the mice, or the mouse, the, the large lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, and the sand lizard, the chameleon. You can't eat those things in the Old Testament. But you look at all the lists that he gives, there's one explicit animal he just does not mention. But he expects you to get it. And that is he never mentions the serpent in Leviticus chapter 11 as an unclean animal. I remember a commentator saying that, yeah, God doesn't mention the serpent in Leviticus chapter 11 because it's rather obvious. They knew that to just get it that you were not supposed to eat that. So again, that's one, one example where an obvious reality is hidden under silence. Let me give you another one where something's so obvious that it's just hidden under silence. And that is the whole entire book of Esther. The entire book of Esther never mentions God, never mentions His name. But it records everything about Esther and Mordecai and the king and Haman, the near annihilation of the whole Jewish people and the vindication over their enemies. But it never mentions God. Well, why is that? How can the redemption, the salvation, the justice all happen in the book of Esther without Esther ever mentioning God? Well, the answer is this, that God expects you to just get it. The whole book is about God subtly working through a woman to save His people. Now, I can go on and on. You can think of some other passages in the Bible. Let me apply it to you as well. You can see how this theme of just getting it it is, it's one way in which the female gender reflects the image of God in our life. Just as God so often expects us to just get it without Him saying a word about it, even so, every woman expects her man to just get it without her saying a word about it. You all understand how that's so true. And what it means is this, is that every man, especially man, the greatest skill that you can have is wisdom in your life. The greatest skill that you can have is basically knowing what to do, how to say it, how to function in every situation in your life and what to do and what to say. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's your goal. That's what, you know, the one word for wisdom in the book of Proverbs is skill. Sometimes I don't like the word wisdom translated in the book of Proverbs because we think that's just simply an intellectual exercise. The word wisdom often is, should be translated as skill. A man needs to have the skill of knowing what to do, what to say, how to angle in, how to respond, how to turn the other cheek, when to balance scales of justice, all that. That's what wisdom is. A man needs to have the wisdom to observe and know the obvious, to just get it. One definition of a fool, you can say, is a fool is somebody who cannot see or refuses to see the obvious. The fool just cannot get it. So he just is blind as a bat. And you see how God functions in so many ways like that in the Bible. Sometimes he doesn't need to say things. He just expects you to get it. You can, for example, one other example, in, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, he never uses the word covenant. 
Well, in Genesis 1, there's a covenant with creation. In Genesis 2, there's a covenant with Adam. And in Genesis 2, there's a covenant made between Adam and Eve. There's a covenant broken in Genesis 3. And then God makes another covenant of redemption or or, or grace of salvation through Jesus Christ in Genesis 3. There's covenants all over Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But never the word is mentioned. Why? Because God wants you to get it. He wants you to see it right there. This is one of the ways in which, by the way, I came to be convinced of infant baptism and the fact that your children, when they're born, they are members of the church. I remember going in the New Testament and looking, looking, where exactly is infant baptism? Where exactly does it say explicitly that your children are actually members of the church or something like that? Because in, in the Baptist theology, they're not members of the church until they make a decision for Jesus. And I began to realize, wait, not everything in the Bible has to be explicitly said. A lot of things, you just need to get it. Okay, so in that, in that sense, uh, God's, God images himself like that in the, with the intuition, the female nature, in the sense that he expects people just to understand what is there, expects you to get it. Now let me move on to say this. My third and last point is this, how God hides himself. God hides himself in the, the redemption of a suffering Savior. When you look at Jesus' life from his birth all the way to his death, everything is like hidden everywhere. Jesus is born in the dead of night with a bunch of farm animals. Okay? There's no glory around it, humanly speaking. At the end of his ministry, what does he do? He is dying on the cross, bleeding. So it's like publicly, in front of the whole world, God is hiding in front of the whole world and nobody can get it and see that it's God except for the few that are there. The Roman centurion that says, oh, that's the Son of God. It's like the cross is the ultimate humor of God. God shows up and says, I'm here saving the world. It looks like Satan is one. It looks like the nations of killing God. All these things. And the world doesn't get it unless they have the gift of faith. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Also, you think about it as well, in Jesus' earthly ministry, so few people got it as far as Jesus being God. They looked at him just for his miracles, just to follow him for his bread and, and for, for fleshly healings. A lot of his earthly ministry, though it's visible in the eyes of man, it didn't come with the splendor of Solomon, the splendor of gold and all the pomp and circumstance so people didn't understand that he was a Savior. God hid himself in the sufferings of Christ. So you can boil it down to these three points I'm making today. Number one, God often, sometimes, hides himself in this way. He'll put some type of righteousness under sin, or even the appearance of sin. He'll put a reality under, under silence, which he expects you to get. And he also puts redemption under our Savior's sufferings. Let me make four applications to you why this is important. Number one, you see this, that This teaches you this. God will be where you least expect a lot. God showed up to Paul, so to speak, when Paul was complaining about his thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, he didn't like it. He wanted that circumstance removed. Well, God shows up and says, My grace is sufficient for you. 
In other words, leave the thorn there. In other words, I'm going to hide my grace under that thorn, Paul. You can handle it. My grace is sufficient. It'll stay right there. It, it shows you that whatever thorn you may have, whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever circumstance, whatever is, is not movable, that God shows up there and hides His grace for you to find it. Number two, it shows you this about the character of God. Whenever God hides Himself so much in the Bible, it shows you the God's character of humility and modesty. And what are you? You're an image of God. That means that you're to cover yourself. You're to clothe yourself. You're not to brag about yourself. You're not to promote yourself. That means you can just be quiet. That means that you don't have to become the, new, the brand new Instagram model known throughout the world. That means that you're, you, know, you may be unknown completely by the entire world, and that is just fine. Because you're content with the fact that God knows you. That means that you may be like Rachel. You may die in such a way that the whole world looks back at you and says, man, that lady died with no faith at all. But for some strange reason, however, you know the fact that God sees your faith and it's all is simply God you're seeking to impress. Think about Rachel. God loves to motivate us to be humble and modest and God demonstrates that throughout His humility, throughout His hiding Himself throughout the Scriptures. Now thirdly, why does God hide Himself so much in the Scriptures? It's because He wants us to live by faith. This kind of goes back to Isaiah chapter 45. You know, God teaches us simply to believe Him and trust Him. Because you look at all of creation, you look at all the world, and you go to school, and you go to university, and you get your telescope and your in your science books and everything, and they'll tell you everything you see came from somewhere. Everything you see was, is six billion years old. It came from something. But you know what God says? No, it came from nothing. And also, it's not that old. It's pretty young. Because He just spoke it into existence. And so that's how God's even hiding behind creation. He puts something out there and says, look at it, isn't it beautiful? And it looks like it came from something. It looks like it is zillions of years old and all this other stuff. And God says, oh, no, I just made it. Just believe me. Trust me. So that's why God hides in such a way that he wants you to live by faith and trust what he says in his scripture. Lastly, last point of application. God hides truth so much because he wants you to work for it. He wants you to dig for it. He wants you to study your Bible. And when you do that, what happens to you? You grow. You actually wrestle with God. You think about what David said in Psalm 119, verse 18. He's studying the book of Deuteronomy, which is the statutes, the laws, the judgments and commandments of God. And Psalm 119 is all about him studying basically the book of Deuteronomy. And he says this, Lord, open my eyes that I may see it. Do not hide your commandment from me. He is reading God's law and trying to learn and deduce all this and how it applies to his life. This is why the king would say this in Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is God's glory to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. Jesus Christ has made you kings and priests in his kingdom. And you can grow and mature and dig out the truth and get under the surface and apply it to your life. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your love in making us more like you. We pray, Father, that you'll give us wisdom and insight in how your, your scripture, your law, is to be applied throughout our life and applied throughout every area of life. We pray that you will mature us as we study your scripture and apply it to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.